comes from Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the words were fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's downtown campus, and it is good uh, to see you this morning. And I would like to ask, I mean, how was your week? How are we coming in today? Christ, are we excited? Are we uh, tired? Are we frustrated? Are we a little bummed out? How, was it a good week for everyone, a tough one? I, uh, I know it's been a, a full week for me, and I do want to say that no matter where you've been, uh, no matter how this week has been for you, uh, if it's good, bad, happy, or sad, we are glad that you are here with us today, and we would love as a church to encourage and support you uh, wherever you are and however we can. And we actually believe that God has something to say to all of us, no matter where we're coming from this week, today, from his word. And so I am uh, excited to dive into that with you this morning. You know, if I, if I had to put a one-word answer to how my week was, probably one word that could sum it all up would be uh, productive. This was a very productive week for me, uh, filled with good work and necessary work. This week, uh, we were making preparations for that Madonna Madonna show. Uh, it's going to be something, not quite sure yet, but it is coming together well. So we got great preparations for that. We were planning kind of long term for some other initiatives for the church. And then uh, Gabe and I both were actually out for a period of time this week at different conferences uh, being developed in some some pastoral skills. I was at a, a fantastic conference for pastors in Oak Park, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. Uh, and, and there, I, seriously, my mind was sharpened, my heart was encouraged. I was able to reconnect with some old friends from seminary, which was quite the treat, and then see uh, kind of what some other pastors are up to around the country. And, and while I was there, uh, I, I got to stay. I roomed with a friend who I was really, really close to in seminary. I mean, like, really close. This is a friend. We, we've traveled to Disney World together. Uh, I did his engagement photos. I was the best man in this guy's wedding. I mean, this is a, a close, close friend. And so we decided, let's both go to this pastor's conference. And while we're there, let's both room together. So we had an outstanding first day at this conference. I mean, I really cannot say enough good things about the gathering that I was at. So full, full day. You know what those days can be like of learning. Then we get back to the room after this day is done. And I, again, I know this guy well, and we have traveled together before, but something had escaped my mind when we were making our travel plans that then came back to me and just, it was a rude awakening when we made it back to the room, okay? So we had a full, full day 
We're starting to wind down. We get into our separate beds, and then, oh, then, church, I was reminded that this guy, I mean, this guy can really snore. And I mean, like, big snores, window-rattling snores. I mean, just fills the whole room with the snore. He, he is a snore of the highest caliber. And so there we are after a full day. And we're, I'm just wiped out, and I know we've got a full day coming the next day, but I hear those first, first soft snores, soft snores start to come, right? I mean, they're just, they're starting, and I don't know if you've been there, but I'm reminded that this is a problem, so I'm there in the bed, and it's like, Tyler, you've got to get to bed quick before this really gets going. But then, of course, as soon as you're thinking about falling asleep, you can't fall asleep anymore, and so then the snores, they really start to pick up, and like the bass kicks in, the subwoofer's on, and I'm I don't know if you've done this church, I'll see if I can do it, but like, you try to plug one, e like, a finger in an ear and bury your head in the pillow and sort of insulate, you know, I'm pulling up covers, I'm making like a noise cocoon, nothing is helping, I mean, the room is so loud, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to fall asleep, you know, I mean, this, the snores are at max volume, and so as this whole scene is unfolding, I mean, it really, it gets quite hilarious, and it's like, do I speak up, do I say something, what do I do now? And then something crossed my mind, kind of a new thought, a fresh thought. And the thought was this, why aren't these snores waking him up? I mean, if I were to say, right, right, but if I were to say something at the same level, I mean, I'm telling you, it got loud in there, the whole room is full. If I were to say something, I'm convinced at the level of volume that he was snoring, he would wake up. I mean, these are loud snores, right? If I would say, like, bro, come on, calm down, right? He would wake up. But these snores, this loud volume snores, room-filling snores, snores I couldn't sleep through at all, they aren't waking him up at all. You know what I mean? He's able to sleep through his own snores. And this is where I want to give you a little window into a sleep-deprived pastor's mind. Because there, in that moment, in that bed, I started thinking about this week's text. And I started thinking about what we'll be studying today. It's like this little light bulb went off in my mind as I was asking myself, man, why aren't his snores waking him up? I immediately began to think of our topic of conversation this morning. Because today, church, we're going to speak about something that I've come to believe is a lot like snoring. Today, we're going to discuss something that, like loud snoring, it's oftentimes obvious and plain to others, right? And it can be frustrating and disruptive to others, but it's something that we tend to not perceive in ourselves, right? Others can spot it or hear it from a mile away, but it's something we don't often see in ourselves. This morning, we're going to talk about ideas and attitudes that really should shake us up and wake us up, right? If we were aware of them in our own hearts, but often we just kind of sleep right through them in our souls. This morning, church, we're going to talk about pride. We're going to talk about pride and about the dangerous way that pride can take root in our hearts and root in our minds and lead us ultimately towards thoughts and behaviors that are, that are simply put, they're just inhuman, they're inhuman. So we're going to learn today from God's Word that pride dehumanizes us and devastates our lives. But before we get there, I want to take a quick summary of where we've been. Over the past several weeks, we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Daniel in a series that we've entitled Life Without Control. And as we've studied Daniel, we've learned specifically about this character, King Nebuchadnezzar, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over all the known world of the ancient world. In chapter 1, we read how Nebuchadnezzar's armies traveled to Jerusalem and besieged the city, right, taking its best and brightest captive. 
We learned how Nebuchadnezzar enslaved Daniel, right, who the book is named for, forcing him to work as a servant in his palace, right, re-educating him and shaping him into someone worthy of being an advisor to the king. We've watched how Nebuchadnezzar demanded worship from his people. We heard from Gabe about how Nebuchadnezzar erected this big statue, right, of himself and demanded that people honor that statue. And today we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's pride at full volume. Right, turned all the way up. And what's fascinating is that we're going to hear Nebuchadnezzar's own reflections on his pride. Because we're going to be reading together this morning from a letter that Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote towards the end of his life. You see, Daniel chapter 4 contains the text from a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote to his entire kingdom. Right? And remember that kingdom, it stretches all the way from like modern day Egypt up to Turkey over to kind of like Saudi Arabia to the south. I mean, a massive kingdom. But King Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter towards the end of his life to this entire kingdom. And it was read publicly. And that letter is contained here in our scriptures, right? It's a letter that Daniel thought was worth including in his text. And so it's become part of the Old Testament. And that letter in Nebuchadnezzar's own words, is what forms the text of Daniel chapter 4, and it can be found on page 740 of our community Bibles. And so we're going to be looking through this letter in Daniel 4. And if you aren't there already, would you join me there? And I'd love to tell you how this letter starts. It begins in verse 4, and the letter opens with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Right? Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to all his people, and he opens by saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was having a fantastic life. It could not have been any better for me. My kingdom was secure. I had conquered everything I knew to conquer every village or territory that I was aware of was under my control, and so I sat at ease in my own house, prospering in my palace, putting my feet up, soaking it all in. And he continues... In verse 5, comfortable though I was, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I was delighted by my rule over the whole world. I was laying back, reclining in my palace. My life was top shelf, but I could not sleep because I was having this dream, a, a bad dream, a dream that was waking me up again and making me anxious. Well, you know, we've read about Nebuchadnezzar's bad dreams before, haven't we? But this bad dream is a different bad dream from that other dream we've studied. This isn't the same old dream. Nebuchadnezzar actually describes this dream in verse 10. He says, Behold, I saw a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great, and the tree grew and became strong. Its top reached the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. Now at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's dream doesn't sound too bad, does it? I mean, it kind of feels like a bright countryside image. Uh, quite honestly, it sounds like something that my mom would buy, like a painting and put in the kitchen next to the aluminum roosters and the pie tins, you know, just like a tree spreading out. So it doesn't sound too bad yet, but listen to the rest of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 13, and behold, a watcher a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter the fruit. I think now it makes a little more sense why Nebuchadnezzar was concerned 
by this dream. You see, the beautiful tree at the center of his dream is, is slated for destruction, right? It's like a tree with a big orange X through it or something that's been marked to be chopped down. To borrow words from the modern I pop icon Kesha, it's about to go down. We, we all listen to the same radio station, I guess. So a holy one from heaven, right, Nebuchadnezzar says, who Nebuchadnezzar identifies as a watcher. He comes into this dream, and he says, this tree, this beautiful big tree with much fruit that you're seeing, Nebuchadnezzar, it, it's slated for destruction, and it's going to be chopped down and stripped of its fruit and stripped of its leaves. And so Nebuchadnezzar, troubled by this dream, he assembles his wise men, right? This reflects what we saw in Daniel chapter 2. He calls the best and brightest together, the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And he says to them, tell me what my dream means. And just like in Daniel chapter 2, the smartest men of Babylon are unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar what this dream means. And then Nebuchadnezzar writes in this letter, he says, but at last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, you remember that in our first sermon, Nebuchadnezzar renamed Daniel, asserting his control. He who I renamed after my God, but in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. At last, Daniel came in, right? At last, Nebuchadnezzar says, the servant who interpreted my dreams before. At last, Nebuchadnezzar says, this servant who's stood head and shoulders over all the others the whole time that he's been under my control. At last, this servant who was, has a seemingly unique connection to God, right, or the gods in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. At last, this Daniel comes in and he tells me what my dream means. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he recounts this dream to Daniel. And Daniel hears it for the first time. And notice how Daniel responds in verse 19 to the first time he hears Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I love this detail. It says that Daniel, he was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarm him. Right? So at last, Daniel comes in. Nebuchadnezzar's excited. He tells Daniel his dream and Daniel's troubled. In fact, Daniel was so visibly disturbed, I think, because he understood the meaning of this dream instantly. He's so visibly disturbed that Nebuchadnezzar even steps in to comfort him. I just think that's hilarious, right? And then Daniel, loving, faithful, loyal, even to this wicked king, right? Nebuchadnezzar said, it's all right, Daniel, don't be that bothered. Daniel says, I've got to be up front with you. Faithful to the end, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of this dream. And here's what he says. He says, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, that is you, O king. You have grown and have become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This is the interpretation, O king. Your dream, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that it is the Most High who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream, it's a warning to you. It's a warning to you from God himself. The Most High has told you in a dream that you will come tumbling down unless you acknowledge that there is one higher than you, that though you rule over all the known world, there is one above you, Nebuchadnezzar, who is, who is greater than even the greatest king, 
Unless you embrace the reality that you are not Lord over all, Nebuchadnezzar, devastation is heading your way. Though you rule over all you see, though you live in a great palace and walk manicured gardens and are pampered from morning till night, though you have convinced yourself that you earned everything that you have, that you are the center of the universe, that all that is yours has become rightfully yours, though you believe that in your heart, Nebuchadnezzar, there is one higher and there is one greater, and he's given you this dream as a warning. He's trying to get your attention. He's warning you that you're caught up in some beliefs and some attitudes and some dispositions in your heart that are, that are far from true. And so Daniel, he gives this interpretation to the king, and then he says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness in your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed. And then he says that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're on a bad path, and it doesn't look good. This, this dream is not a, a hopeful image, but maybe, just maybe, King, if you, if you tone it down in some of the executions, right? Maybe, just maybe, if you would show some generosity to the poor. Maybe, King, if, if you quit living how you've been living and adjusted some things in your life, maybe you could lengthen your prosperity, by which he means maybe you could delay this impending judgment from God on your pride. Right? Maybe, King, if, if you adjust some attitudes of heart and some behaviors, maybe you can avoid what this dream seems to say is coming your way soon. If you practice righteousness and, and show mercy to the oppressed, perhaps the divine lumberjack will give you a little more time. And I have to ask at this point in the story, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, what would you do? Be honest with yourself. What would you really do? If you were Nebuchadnezzar, if the entire known world was under your control, if you had convinced yourself that you were the center of the universe and you deserved that spot, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, would you take this warning to heart? Would you act quickly and decisively to adjust your attitude and adjust your behavior? Would you perform like an immediate total overhaul of your life, seeking to change some things and, and do some things differently so that you could avoid the foretold consequences? Would you like double down and get serious and commit to, to really living a life that you knew was, was better than the one you'd been living? Or, or would you maybe try to press your luck a bit? Right. Would you make some minor tweaks, maybe tone it down a bit for a while, at least immediately, you know, and see if you can maybe skate out from under the consequences? I know this as one who has delayed oil changes many times in my life, right? I mean, would you just kind of wait, skate on, you know, watch the mileage, stick up the lights on, but the light means you've got three more weeks, right? What would you do if you were Nebuchadnezzar Church? Honestly, what would you do? Well, if you want to know what Nebuchadnezzar did, we see it at the beginning of verse 29. It says this, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Did you catch that? The king let 12 months pass. And it doesn't say what happened in those 12 months. I mean, let's give Nebuchadnezzar the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps he did tone it down in executions at first, right? Perhaps there were some adjustments that he did at first, right? Who knows? 
But 12 months passed, and it seems by what he says next that there was no deep change, no new patterns took over the old patterns, no kind of lasting transformation set in, because it says at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking on the roof of this royal palace in Babylon, and then the king answered and said to himself, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and the glory to my majesty, right? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar lets 12 months pass from this great warning and there he is strolling in his garden saying, look what I have done, a testament to my majesty and my glory and my power. And the text says in verse 33 that immediately, Immediately, as soon as those words came out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, immediately the word of the Lord, it was filled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty tree of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings the world has ever seen, Nebuchadnezzar, who historians say, we can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, we know what rich people are like now, right? But to be the richest, ruling everything that's known in the world, I mean, Bill Gates doesn't come close to that church. Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty king of Babylon, he was instantly imploded. And the text says that he, he kind of, he lost his mind, so he started eating grass out in the fields. And he would sleep outside too, and his, his hair grew real long, and it wasn't like cool hipstery. I mean, it was gross and matted, which might be cool. Uh, and his, his nails got long. The text says they were like bird claws, right? I mean, you see it all there in the text. He lives out like a wild beast. I mean, just loses his mind. And you've got to remember, this is a shrewd ruler who had done some good work to amass an entire kingdom. He, he just loses his mind. The fabulous and famous Nebuchadnezzar, he becomes like a kind of a common beast in the field. His mind leaves him. I am sure his, his advisors, they were baffled by this bizarre behavior. I mean, if this was the world of press conferences, they would have been tucking him away, right, and sending out a surrogate. I mean, the king who had it all, who knew every luxury, was reduced to barbarism because he would not honor God. And church, I think this is instructive for us. I think that the particular way in which Nebuchadnezzar kind of loses his mind, I think that has something to teach us about pride. I think there's a lesson in this for us, and the lesson that I see is this. It's that human pride is dehumanizing, right? Human pride is dehumanizing. And what do I mean by that? Well, does Christian scriptures teach that God made humans to be creatures with great dignity, yes, in the world, certainly, certainly, but also to be creatures that recognize their dependence upon him. And theologians and philosophers over the centuries have recognized that to be human, right, is to be dependent. Humans require help. To be human is to be reliant on others and reliant on God. I mean, the theologian Ephraim Radner, he, he makes this point well when he speaks about life's givenness, right? Life's givenness. Radner points out that human life, it's something that is given to each of us. None of us willed our own way into existence, right? None of us chose to have life. We didn't send an email or a text saying, hey, I'd love to be born right now. I mean, there was no control in that. Human life is something that's given. It's, it's given. We were brought into this world through processes and initiatives outside of our control. And this, Radner says, this is strong evidence of human life's givenness, right? This reality that we, we didn't choose to live, it should remind us, Radner argues, that our lives are a gift, a gift that we've been given and that we didn't give ourselves, and, and we didn't choose or select our, our existence, our gifts, they're, they're a gift from God himself. 
And if our lives have been given to us, that means we can't pretend or claim some kind of ownership over them. They're, they're gifts. And to be fully human, I would say, is to recognize life's givenness. Right? It's to embrace the fact that as creatures created by God, uh, these lives have been given to us, and we have some creaturely limitations. We're limited in our knowledge and in our ability. We have some capacities, yes, some great capacities even, but, but we're, we were made to have those, but God also, uh, we're, we're limited, right? We have limitations on what we can know and limitations on what we can do. And, and that's just the way it is. And these limits, Radner says, these are, these are good things because in our limitations, these are places where we experience connection with God. Right? Our limits open us up to connections with God. They remind us of our life's givenness. They remind us that we don't have ultimate control over our lives. They remind us that we need help both from others, yes, and from the God who made us. That's why these limitations are, are part of our lives. To be human, simply put, is to be limited. And to embrace those limits is connecting points with God. But here's what pride does. Pride says, you know what? I don't have any limits. I actually, I did this. I'm in control. I've made this happen. My life, I'm in charge of that. I, I'm who it all depends on, right? Pride says, the bucket, it stops here with me. And, and it says this, pride, as it says this, it, it denies human limitation, right? It denies life's givenness. Pride lies about the fact that we are dependent, created creatures. And it instead suggests that we have more control and more power and more ownership over our lives than we actually do. And it's in this sense, I believe, that human pride is dehumanizing because we were made to be dependent creatures, thankful for the way that our limitations connect us with God, but pride actually makes us less than that. Right? It's, it's, it's dehumanizing. It deceives us into thinking that we are somehow, some way, in ultimate control over our lives when we are, in fact, not. This is what pride does. And church, this is so important. I think this definition of pride, this comprehensive definition of pride, of this assumption that we have more control than we really do, this is so important because it keeps us from confusing pride with arrogance, right? And it keeps us from confusing pride with conceitedness, right? To be sure, pride can certainly look like arrogance. And if the first image we get in our mind would think of pride as maybe some rich person who tells stories only of themselves and talks about how they built everything themselves and, you know, all this money I have and show off. I mean, that's not a bad image of pride, but don't get that confused as the main definition of pride. Pride is bigger, right? And pride is shiftier. I mean, that's the obvious and easy example, but pride gets down deeper. Pride's there anytime we think that we're in ultimate control of our lives. It can happen when we have great success, but it can happen even in worries and anxieties as well. When we think that everything in our life depends upon our action, when we make ourselves the center of our own universe, when we pretend as if somehow we can control every detail and circumstance of our lives, whether our life is going great or not, when that attitude creeps up, church, that's pride. That's pride. Yes, yes, it's the fancy person talking about themselves at a cocktail party. But I would say that pride is in each and every one of us when we claim the control or the autonomy, or the authority, or the ownership over our lives that is not ours, that rightfully belongs to God, when we deny those limitations that God has put in our lives to connect us to Him, church, in those small and subtle ways that that happens so regularly in all of our lives, that's pride. 
And I would contend that it has its roots in each of our hearts to some extent. Pride, it's sinister. It's in all of us because we all so often operate from the assumption that our lives are our own, that we're in control, and that we have made our successes or our failures ourselves. Church pride, it was the first sin. It's what led Adam and Eve to question God, to go against God, and it remains one of the most pervasive and one of the most damaging sins that our human hearts desire. Pride dehumanizes us. It's dangerous because it devastates our relationship with God. If our limitations are supposed to connect us with God and pride denies those limitations, do you see how pride disconnects us from God? incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And it devastated and turned Nebuchadnezzar into a wild beast, I think, to show us the dehumanizing effects of pride. So what do we do? What do we do with the fact that we all so easily deny life's givenness and pretend like we have control? What do we do with the fact that pride, I would say, has its roots deep in all of our hearts? Church, what do we do? I do think we get some clues from Nebuchadnezzar's story. So look at me, if you will, at verse 34. It's towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's letter, and he says this. He says, at the end of the days, right? Nebuchadnezzar's reflecting back on this time when he kind of lost his mind. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride had driven him out of his mind, right, causing him to lose his true humanity, to live like a beast out in the field, right, to lose sight of his dependence on God. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar has a drastic change of heart. The king who captured the nation of Israel, he he comes to honor and worship the God of Israel. I mean, this is remarkable. Nebuchadnezzar describes the beginning of this drastic turn in his life by saying this. He says, when my reason returned to me, when my reason returned to me, when I started to think more accurately about life in the way that it is, at the end of my life, as my reason returned to me, I realized, gosh, I need to honor and praise this God that I've seen in Daniel's life that's shown up again and again in my own reign and rule. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? My reason returned to me and I recognized I am not the end all and be all of this kingdom. I mean, don't miss this church. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon, the bad guy in our story thus far in Daniel, he actually bowed his knee and worshiped God. Isn't that remarkable? And Nebuchadnezzar's change of heart, I think it took place because two things happened. There were maybe two steps to this transformation, specifically in his pride. First, God showed him the error of pride, and then he responded, Nebuchadnezzar responded with gratitude and obedience. God showed Nebuchadnezzar the error of pride, and then Nebuchadnezzar responded with gratitude and obedience. God graciously, I would say, removed Nebuchadnezzar's ability to reason and caused him to live like a beast so that Nebuchadnezzar could see what his pride was really doing to him on the inside, right? 
God had knocked on the door with a dream, and that didn't quite work. He let a whole year go by and was living the same life. And so God graciously, in a grand object lesson, both to Nebuchadnezzar and to us by extension, removed some of his abilities and so that he would have to live like maybe less than human to show Nebuchadnezzar the dangers of pride. God showed Nebuchadnezzar the error of his pride. In church, I'm going to be honest, that's what I've been doing my best to do so far this morning. And I know it hasn't been perfect. Uh, maybe there would have been a better joke or some kind of story in the middle. We'll get that next time, right? But I have done my best to articulate in words, right, and with passion as best as I can how pride disrupts our connection with God. I've tried my best right this morning to make clear the dangers of pride, for both for our own lives and for our connection with God, right? I've tried to highlight the way that we disconnect ourselves from God when we deny life's givenness. Right, and pretend that we have more control in our lives than we actually do. My prayer is this morning that, Lord, help me to be as best as I can at showing the error of pride. I've been trying to go after step one, church. But there's still that step two, isn't there? And now the question is, how will we respond? I mean, now that we've got a small glimpse or maybe a better glimpse of the dangers of pride, how will we respond to God's warning to us from Scripture today? Are we going to write it off? completely, right? Just kind of leave this room out of sight, out of mind? Are we going to do a few things and maybe let it dribble off and trickle off, right? Will we kind of wait a year like Nebuchadnezzar did? I mean, how will we respond to this warning against pride that God has given us this morning from Scripture? Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar responded after he had kind of lost everything. Ultimately, he responded with gratitude and obedience. And I'd like to suggest this morning that gratitude and obedience are our pathways as well for moving away from pride towards life. That if we hear this warning this morning and it's starting to sink in, we realize, oh gosh, I may have more pride than I thought because pride isn't just being fancy and talking about your stories at a cocktail party. Pride is every time I claim more control in my life than I actually have. If that kind of warning bell is going off, in our hearts now, right? I think that gratitude and obedience are the pathways to life and away from pride. So what does that mean specifically on a practical level, right? What can we do this week to kind of cut pride off at the root? I think simply there's two things. We can thank God and obey God. Right? We can thank God and obey God. Thank Him and obey Him. Those are the ways we combat pride in our hearts. I mean, first to thank him. I think a posture of gratitude, a posture of thankfulness, a, a commitment to thank God again and again and again for the ways that he's at work in our lives. Thanking God, I think that starts to uproot pride. So maybe this week, I mean, something real practical, maybe you could sit down and write a thank you letter to God. You know? I mean, it's a good practice always to write thank you notes, but maybe you could write one to God. Just say, Lord, thank you for this in my life, and thank you for that in my life. And I recognize now, Lord, you've kind of shaken me and waken me up, and I recognize now that this is a gift, and this is a gift, and that's a gift, and that's a gift. And maybe the process of writing a thank you letter could be something that helps cut the roots of pride out of your heart. Maybe that's one way, right? Writing a thank you note to God. Or maybe there kind of needs to be sort of a new prayer that, that rewires uh, the, the familiar conduits of your mind, right? They say that prayer changes things and prayer changes the one who prays the prayer, right? I think the prayer, thank you, God, could be one that I repeat more this week, right? Instead of being like, gosh, Tyler, you nailed that one, you did this one, maybe a better prayer would be, Lord, thank you for that. 
thank you for that and thank you for that person that helped and thank you for the way that you showed up there and helped me there. I think that prayer, just thank you, God, thank you, God, could start to rewire our minds in a way and, and uproot pride's tentacles that have seeped into so many areas of our lives, right? A thank you note to God. We're continually praying, thank you, God. I think those are ways that we can cultivate a gracious heart, a heart that recognizes life's givenness and God's goodness and therefore walks away from pride and toward connection with him. I think that's one way, right? We need to thank God. That's one of the ways we fight pride. And the other way is we need to obey him. We need to obey him. Obedience is a way, when we, when we obey someone else, we kind of recognize that they have some authority. We recognize that they might know best. And so obedience to God, putting ourselves under God's authority and choosing to do something that we would not otherwise choose to do because we're convinced it's what God would like us to do, that's a way to acknowledge that he is the giver of life, right? that he is the author of life, the sustainer of life, and that our role as a creature, when we get pride out of the way, is to follow his path towards flourishing, right? Obedience, there's sure grateful thankfulness, but there's also obedience as a way that we can cut out the roots of pride in our hearts. And so when I bring up that word obedience, is there something that kind of comes to your mind or comes to your heart? Is there something that God's maybe been already nudging you to do, but that you've been resisting? Right? Maybe something at work or something at home, or there are uh, some words you need to cut out of your vocabulary. That's my personal one, right? or an app you need to delete from your phone, or there's some financial steps you need to take, right? Maybe some personal issues or relational issues you need to resolve. See, I'm convinced that God speaks through his spirit to our hearts so often. My hunch is when I say the word obedience, there might already be something that comes to mind. Church, the fact are there are as many paths of obedience in this room as there are people. I think God has us each on a plan where he's developing us individually to become more and more like him. But those individual paths in this room, they'll only lead us to true life and away, away from pride and toward life if we walk in them, right? If we actually take steps where God's calling us to take steps. So church, yeah, thankfulness this week. Let's be thankful, thankful, thankful. But can we also be an obedient church? And what's one thing you could commit to right now in the quietness of this moment and say, Lord, I'd like to be obedient in that this week is an indicator that you are Lord over all and that what I have in my life, it, it is a gift from you. You know best, and I want to acknowledge that and keep claiming that I somehow know better or can do better or are responsible for the goodness in my life. Lord, it's been a gift from you. Let me acknowledge that this week through my obedience. Church, is there, a, is there any way that you need to take a step of obedience this week. And I know that both these things, right, becoming more and more grateful to God or, or taking a big step of obedience towards God, they can seem like hard and heavy things, can't they? And my hunch is some of us might already feel like, hey, Tyler, I, I am just too far gone. I don't know where to start. I think pride's roots are too deep. It, uh, it might be a little too late for me. If that's you, I just want to end by saying this. Don't miss this, church. God pursued King Nebuchadnezzar who devastated Jerusalem. I mean, you, you can't imagine the bloodbath of this siege church. Devastated Jerusalem. Took the best and brightest captive. Brought them to serve in his own kingdom, right? God pursued that king Nebuchadnezzar by giving him a dream and sending Daniel his way. And even when he ignored the dream, giving him the, one of the greatest object lessons of human history, right? God intervened and went after Nebuchadnezzar's prideful and stubborn heart. And church, as far as I'm aware, and I know many of you very well, 
None of you have been ruthless dictators who captured other people and placed them under your control through re-education, right? Think that's true of this room, at least in first service. So church, if that's the case, I think none of us are too far gone for God to pursue. And the whisper you might be hearing in your heart this morning, that's God trying to get through and saying it's not too far gone. Yes, pride has its root in all of us, but there is a path away from pride to toward life. And it's in following God and giving him both the gratitude that he deserves and the obedience church. Those are our steps this week. And I know those are tough. So will you join me now in prayer as we ask the God of heaven to help us with that tough task? Can we pray? I mean, Lord, quite honestly, it's, uh, it's hard to say thank you for reminding us about pride because it can feel so heavy, but we, we are thankful. We are thankful because we know and we've seen that pride dehumanizes us. It, it makes us less than you intended for us to be. Lord, you want us to have deep connection with you, to embrace our limits as ways that we are connected with you. And we, we deny those so much, Lord, in big ways and small ways, in conscious ways and unconscious ways. Lord, we pretend like we are the ultimate authorities over our own lives when we are not. And Lord, we need your help to change that. Those are well-worn paths in our hearts and in our minds. God, would you help us this week to fight pride through thankfulness and to fight pride through obedience. We need your help to do that good work, Lord. Would you uh, sustain us and encourage us in that work? We ask it in your powerful name. Amen.